Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we look at acid in unusual places produced by unusual means. Now what connects industrial processes making chemicals for polymer production with ants and yeast? Well, all of it has to do with acid, and strange and unusual ways of both producing acid and using it. So we can focus on biological productions of acid and how it can be made to work for us, or for ants. Now there's lots of incredible things about ants, aside from the fact that they can live in highly organised colonies, travel huge distances, work as a coordinated team, leave chemical or pheromone trails to direct others. They also have a handy little trick that involves acid. You see, ants actually often use formic acid, one of the simplest organic acids that you can possibly produce. In fact, that's what ants do. They actually produce it in a special gland in their abdomen. Not just in one certain species of ant, but actually in quite a few. Now, researchers have been trying to figure out why would an ant produce formic acid? Like, what purpose could it possibly serve? Now, sometimes creatures produce toxic coatings to prevent them being eaten by well, perhaps a predator. In the case of an ant, you could prevent yourself being eaten by insects or birds if you tasted really bad. Then, obviously, the predators would learn not to chow down on you and thus you'd be saved. And so often, that's where you see these kind of defense mechanisms build up. But that didn't really quite make sense for the acid. And that's what researchers like Dr. Simon Thralkst, who's from the Institute of Biology at Martin Luther University in Halle-Wittenberg, collaborated with other authors like Claudia Herman, Jane Hofner, and Ronja Brauch from other universities, including the University of Beirut. They published together in the journal eLife a summary of the way these ants can use formic acid for actually a pretty unusual purpose, to protect themselves inside and out. What exactly were the ants doing with all this formic acid? Now, researchers like contributing author Professor Heike Fieldhaar from University of Beirut published a few years ago how these ants could use formic acid for looking after their young, basically for brood care. They could disinfect their brood and prevent the spread of harmful fungi across the ant colony, especially in their young who are most susceptible to it. Effectively, the formic acid was acting as a kind of disinfectant. So this part was understood, and it makes sense. You can use formic acid as effectively a cleaning solution. And if you can produce your own soap or cleaning solution, kills off your main damaging thing that can hurt you, this fungus, well, that makes a lot of sense for the ants to be actually getting good at producing formic acid. But this study actually went a step further than that and looked, well, how else and why were these ants using formic acid? They undertook an observation of the animal's behaviour. When ants swallow food or water, they start cleaning their hindquarters immediately afterwards, is what the researchers like Thralks detected. They wanted to figure out why they were doing that. Because... Obviously, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would they immediately start cleaning their hindquarters just after eating? And it can't have been something that was part of the digestive process because they also observed the ants cleaning their hindquarters in the same way, even only after they drunk water. Now, obviously, when you drink water, you don't need to do any hard work on your digestive system, so why would you need to be so thoroughly cleaning your hindquarters as well? So that really puzzled them, and they had to undertake several experiments And what they're able to find out is that the ants were actually disinfecting themselves on the inside. So when these ants had access to formic acid, 
they had a much higher rate of survival, specifically when they were eating food that had been enriched with pathogenic bacteria. That was basically the control experiment that they put in place. They had some ants which could clean themselves with this hindquarters and get the formic acid and then consume it as part of the normal eating process. When they were fed bad food, effectively food containing bacteria, well, they had a higher rate of survival if they had the formic acid as part of their diet effectively, or as part of this cleaning process. Obviously compares to the control where they didn't have this and obviously it was quite dangerous for the ants. But more importantly, they're able to show that the beneficial effect from this formic acid could be passed from ant to ant. Because ants actually pass food from mouth to mouth to their nestmates. Now obviously in the time of social distancing this seems crazy, but the ants are actually cleaning it as it goes. Because you know this would otherwise be, imagine for us if we were trying to do something else, a potential major source of infection. But if the ant passing on the food had previously ate some of the acid, then there was a much lower chance of the receiving ant falling ill. And this makes sense because this behavior might clean out the insides of the desert, keep the ant and its mouth area pretty healthy, free of bacteria, so they can actually pass on food from one ant to the next without passing on bacteria at the same time. Imagine if your mouth was entirely filled with antibacterial hand sanitizer, for example. Not that it is ever possibly recommended, you will get very drunk and very sick very quickly. But that's effectively what these ants are doing with formic acid, using it to clean out themselves inside their mouths and their stomachs and avoid passing on bacteria to other ants in the colony as they share food and also keeping themselves safe. Now this is amazing because it shows that the formic acid is being used by the ants not only to keep their young safe, to keep themselves safe, but also to keep the whole colony safe as part of their sharing food process. This also explains, as the research have been investigating, why ants have so few bacteria in their digestive tracts. Compared to, to us, our gut flora and fauna, they're all unique microbiomes to themselves. But ants have very little bacteria in the digestive tracts. Those that are present are actually ones that are strongly resistant to acid, which makes sense because, you know, if you're swallowing acid all the time, the only microbes that can survive in your stomach are going to be ones that don't dissolve in acid. Now, ants are just one of the few animals in the animal kingdom that have extremely acidic stomachs. Pretty much it's us humans and a few other vertebrates, and they're the only ones along with these ants that produce or have acid in our stomachs. But humans, unlike the ants, they act we actually produce the acid directly in our stomach. The acid in our stomachs helps kill germs in the food and influences the microbiome of the gut. But in the case of the ants with their formic acid, it also is in their mouths and in their whole body and on their young as well. So it's sort of an external process of production of acid as opposed to an internal one in humans. So humans and ants share things alike, that we work at a collaborative part of a society where hygiene is incredibly important to keep our young safe, keep ourselves safe, and keep our community safe. And the ants are doing this with formic acid. This is some great research published in the journal eLife with lead authors Simon Strauch and Claudia Herman and a range of collaborators. interesting ideas floating around at the moment that many people are working on is trying to make microbes and other microscopic organisms act as a kind of sustainable factory 
that could be used to produce all kinds of materials for us. Now, there's several reasons why you want to do this. When it comes to complex chemicals, decoupling our reliance on petrochemicals is incredibly important. You want to make plastics, you want to make other things. Maybe there's a more efficient way to make it, make it something with renewable sources. It could be used to make nutrients or sugars or byproducts, any type of thing that you could think of. Some people are trying to make fabrics with it or alternatives to you know, basically polyester as an example. Now, this kind of growing material like that, algae or bacteria or microbes, you name it, it's needing a lot of work because obviously you're trying to get to an end product that you have in mind, but first you've got to make the things that could produce that end product. So it's an ever-ending hunt for trying to identify microbes or other things that you could use effectively as your grower or your feedstock that you could use to produce the byproduct that you want. It's starting at the finished product and then trying to work out the production line from there. Normally, if you wanted to say produce a car or maybe make some clothing, you would start with the fibers at the farm level and build your way up and then you would automate those processes, scale those processes till you could make a whole bunch of jumpers, say, really easily and efficiently. But this is sort of taking the opposite way, starting at the jumper and saying, well, how could I possibly produce these in a sustainable and organic-based process? Now, it seems a bit strange, but that's effectively what the researchers and a number of different projects across the world have been doing. Now, this particular team of researchers from Penn State, the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and Princeton University have been collaborating together, and they published in the journal Metabolic Engineering Communication. Now, a couple of lead authors on this are Patrick Suthers and Huang Din and Zia Fatma, along with a large team of collaborators, as I said, from a number of different universities. And their idea is to take something that you would think would otherwise be overlooked. That's yeast. And their idea here is to find a special type of yeast that could survive incredibly tough and difficult environments and use it to become a production line effectively for making acidic products. Now, in order to make acidic products, you have to be able to survive in a really difficult environment like we just talked about with the ants. Now, to do that, you have to do a couple of things to identify something that could survive and then you have to see if a way you could even make that possible, enhance the genes to do so. So this particular project involved computational modeling, obviously an understanding of the biological process and chemical to an extent too, and then gene editing and tools like CRISPR to try and see if you could make something that would even do this. So they can start by breaking down the yeast metabolism into like a network model. And they could see how the yeast would grow and what it would produce depending on its feedstock. And you could sort of track the different byproducts that you get depending on the different feedstocks. Then identified a particular strain that was able to produce succinic acid. Now, succinic acid is incredibly important because it's used as a precursor, a base material used in industrial polymer production. If you want to make a lot of different complicated polymers, you might need different precursor materials. In this case, they were trying to effectively find a yeast that would grow succinic acid for them as a byproduct of the yeast's actual growth. It's not that the yeast turns into succinic acid, it's just that the yeast as part of its growth produces succinic acid that you can then harvest off. A bit like, say, milking a cow. Coarse analogy, but would serve the purposes for this. Now, the way they identified exactly what they would need to do to do this was using a whole bunch of predictive models and algorithms to see which genes they could tweak and which areas they could 
approach in terms of the yeast itself to find one that would actually survive and produce it. So they had the idea about maybe we could use a yeast to produce acinic acid as byproduct, great, but which one would actually be able to survive to produce enough of it to survive a scale implementation of this? And that required a lot of simulation because there's a lot of different genes and a lot of different metabolic reactions, around 850 genes and 1800 metabolic reactions. So the combinatorial approach to see which ones of these you'd want to have or not have, and how to combine and slice them using techniques like CRISPR to make this yeast to produce a good yield of acetic acid becomes a very difficult problem, a needle in a haystack problem as they describe it. But a kind of needle in a haystack, thousands of combinations, brute forcing approach, really difficult to do in a lab without a stroke of luck. For computers, well, as long as you design a simulation sufficiently and have enough data, that's the kind of problem a machine or machine learning or computer simulation can work on really efficiently. So that's the technique. So they used what's called OpNOC. It's an optimization framework developed by the Maranus group as part of a computational modeling technique. And this computational models that say, try this, try that, try this, try that, guided the researchers in terms of which combinations would be the best to give a chance to. Because when you have a limited lab resources and time, you can't test the millions and millions of different combinations. But you can say, well, try these ones first and see which ones you could work on. This means now they have a very useful model of yeast that they can then plug in and see which genes they want to combine to th optimize things like growth rates or fluxes or, or try to really nail down the metabolic system to make it much more efficient. Or maybe identify different genes to use to produce different products, not just acidic acid. So it's this kind of research that seems strange, but is required if you want to use organic means to produce and replace otherwise industrial chemicals. Now, this whole idea of having a green plastics effectively relies on this, or green sustainable production methods, relies on this innovative biochemistry. But once you have sufficient models to come up with ways to quickly focus in on areas of interest in your research, it actually becomes possible to look at an end product and then work your way back. And that's effectively what they're doing in this case. But as I said, still early days here in this field, but it's a field that's gaining more and more interest because it's certainly possible that we could use tools like this to supplant parts of our existing industrial processes with more sustainable ways of producing them that doesn't rely on petrochemicals, which has a number of benefits, let alone the climate benefit, because it's now actually a sustainable process of production as opposed to a consumption-based model. In any case, it's an interesting paper published in Metabolic engineering communications about finding a yeast that's able to survive super harsh acidic conditions to produce acid and supplant other methods of production using harsh petrochemicals. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From formic acid helping keep ant colonies safe inside and out to ways of producing new chemical processes using yeast to make succinic acid. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.